You're a good father. And we love you. And we ask you now in this moment to help enable our hearts to hear you. My heart especially, Father God, as we look at your word, open the eyes of our hearts, reveal your son in all of his glory to us, help us see who you are. And any part of me that would be a distraction, Father, I pray that you'd put it to the side, that that you would stand forth from your word in all of the splendor and worth and power that you possess and that our eyes would see you, the eyes of our hearts would see you with clarity. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. All right, so for the last three weeks, uh, we have been journeying alongside uh, a man named Jonah, and we've had a a front row seat to his uh, life over the last three weeks and how he has run from God. We've seen him running from God, fleeing the presence of God, and it, it is not a great sight. It is a tragic sight. First, we saw Jonah leave uh, Israel for Tarshish because he did not want to go to Nineveh and preach the word to Nineveh. He left the presence of the Lord and got on a ship and fell asleep on the the ship. Then we saw a storm collide with this ship and threaten to destroy it. And uh, Jonah realizes, hey, I'm the reason for this storm and tells the sailors there to throw him off the ship so that the storm stops. And so though they are reluctant initially, they do this, and the sea does calm. Jonah's sacrifice stops the storm, and the sailors, it's a remarkable scene, the sailors start to worship God. They recognize that God was behind this, the one true God. And um, Jonah falls below the surface of the Mediterranean Sea and prepares to die. And this is where we find ourselves today. Jonah is falling into the deep of the Mediterranean and he's going to die. No one at this point in the story, nobody inside the story, nobody reading this, whether in our modern time or hundreds and hundreds of years uh, earlier, um, and even in that time when this was being told, no one would have expected Jonah, including himself, to live another second. He's going to die below the surface of the Mediterranean, but what happens next is shocking to say the least. So if you have your Bibles, please grab them. Turn to Jonah 1 verse 17. Jonah 1 verse 17. And so as Jonah is falling to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, this is what our text reads. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And so this verse is, for a lot of us, how we know Jonah. We know Jonah from this particular aspect of the story. And it is shocking, uh, the idea that a fish would do this Um, But you'll notice this verse and the verse that comes at the end of the text we're about to read happens with little fanfare, almost as a matter of fact. And the truly shocking thing for the author in the entire course of this book isn't the great fish. It isn't Jonah's survival uh, in, in the stomach of a fish for three days. The shocking thing for the author 
and for the readers is that God actually let Jonah live. That's the amazing thing, that God allowed Jonah to live. That's the shocking part. After all that's happened in the first chapter, after all that's gone on in him disabusing himself of God, God's presence, God's purpose, God who could send anybody to Nineveh and just hit the reset button, is still pursuing Jonah, still loves Jonah, and is going to spare Jonah here. That's the shocking aspect of this story, and we find out how he's going to do that over the course of chapter 2. So I'm going to read for you the entirety of chapter 2. It's short, and I want you to keep in mind this is happening while Jonah is in the belly of the fish. So listen to how this plays out. It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet, I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord." It says that the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So this is a, almost the entirety of chapter two is a prayer of thanksgiving from Jonah in response to something that's already happened before this. In verse 17, Jonah is saved by God in in the form of this great fish swallowing him before he drowned. And Jonah throughout the course of chapter two is thanking God. He is as he thanks God, recounting in this prayer how it came to be that he was saved. What was Jonah thinking as he dropped deeper and deeper and deeper into the sea? What was he thinking? What was he doing? What did he feel? This prayer tells us all of that, and yet it's clear that he's not recounting it in chronological order. If you were looking through the text and paying attention to it, you see there's almost a cyclical poetic repetition to this. And there's a pattern that emerges in each of these verses. And you can take a look at it later on when you get a chance. The pattern is, is interesting because it's almost as though each verse, each passage goes on in a mini journey in and of itself. There are three key events that are in each section. The first is Jonah's fall his fall into the sea. The second is his call out to God. And the third is his salvation. So if you're a note taker, fall, call, 
and I couldn't come up with something that had the same assonance as fall and call, so I just went with salvation, because that's what it is. Fall, call, and salvation. I want to spend time looking at all three of these, and then what I want to do is I want to drill down into the main point of the entire chapter, which is one point. And so Jonah 2, the first event that we come to here is Jonah's fall. This is not at all ambiguous in the text. Uh, We see his fall clearly in the language that he uses to depict a literal plummeting down to the bottom of the Mediterranean. In verse 2, he describes his state as being in distress. He says he was in the belly of Sheol, which is the Hebrew word for the place of the dead. In other words, he's saying, my death was certain. It was guaranteed. In verse uh, 3, he says that he's been cast into the deep, into the heart of the seas, where the flood has completely surrounded him, and all of God's waves, all of God's billows have passed over him. In verse 5, we see that the waters have closed in over him as though he is being buried alive. And he's ready to die. The water's going to take his life. The deep surrounds him. And then suddenly, in this text, he reaches the bottom. Where weeds, seaweed at the bottom of the ocean is wrapping around his head at the roots of the mountains, it says. Jonah is at the bottom of the sea in this text. The land, which is the bottom, as he calls it in verse 6, he says, its bars closed on him forever. And so Jonah's fall here is depicted in very clear, yet in very vivid, yet very disturbing language. And we need to pause a second and just put ourselves in Jonah's situation. Have you, have you, has anybody here almost drowned once before? Has anybody ever felt, or maybe something a little bit easier, have you ever been caught in the undertow of a wave and been pulled below without any power, any ability to stop it? Have you ever been, and this might be more of you, stuck underneath something in the middle of a pool and been like, I can't, I'm not going to be able to get up and get air. And, and in that brief moment, that split second, there is a panic that surges in your heart, in your being. It's extremely traumatic, even just for a few seconds, no less for 30 to 60 seconds, which is what uh, medical practitioners believe is how long it takes for the human body to actually drown. And we don't know how long Jonah was under the water. Um, No less uh, do we know where he actually fell in the Mediterranean. Where was it? How long did he, how far did he have to go to to get to the bottom? Um, But we need to kind of put our minds where he was when he was there. He was falling all the way down. Imagining feeling that panic all the way down to the bottom. Try to conceive what it was like as he, he reaches the bottom and it is pitch black. He can see nothing. There's no more light coming in from above. The water is frigid cold and it feels as though his very body is being crushed by it. it is, he's in a place beyond any reasonable ability to survive. There's no way that he's going to live past this. Yet he's conscious, clearly, from the prayer, and he's experiencing all of that trauma with the finality that this is it. This is it for me. I'm going to die. 
And there's a, even a, a massive spiritual dynamic to the language. There's an interesting spiritual dynamic here. For example, verse 6 says, He went down to the land, to the depths of the sea, and its bars closed on him forever, which many theologians believe signals his arrival at the gates of Sheol, his death. He, he knows this is it for me. This is it for me. There is literally nothing I can do to save myself in this situation. He has no hope for survival. He has no hope for being able to live past this. He knows he's going to die, but something happens. If you look at verse 7, it says, Jonah tells us here, as his life was fainting away, he remembered the Lord. That's when he first prays to God. That's when he first realizes, I need to call out for help. Which takes us to the second event in this series of events. Fall and now call. Jonah is going to, he remembers God, and verse 2 tells us he calls out to God. Verse 3 says he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard his voice. And all of this comes from him remembering. He didn't call out before he remembered. He called out after he remembered. Now, what is it that Jonah remembers here? I mean, just a few verses above. We know, like, it's not the existence of God because a few verses above, he's talking to the sailors about his God. Um, the sailors ask him, who's your God? Who do you, who do you like, what kind of people are you? Um, where do you come from? And he says, my God, the God I fear is Yahweh, the, the Lord. And um, so we know that, that what Jonah remembers in chapter 2 is not God's existence. What does he remember then? What is it that, about God that he remembers? And the only real explanation based on his response to that memory, his calling out, is that Jonah remembers that God is gracious, that this God is a merciful God, abounding in in steadfast love. Somewhere in between, that reality had not pressed on him, and he was lost. He didn't know. But it says here, he remembered this about God. Now think about this. This is the very reason that he ran in the first place. Chapter 4, verse 2 tells us that Jonah ran from the presence of God, got on this ship, is on his way to the bottom of the Mediterranean because he knew God was gracious and merciful. And now, as he reaches the bottom, as his life is fainting away, it says, I remembered, I remembered. He realizes who God really is, and he's relying on this. You see his trust shift throughout this entire chapter. This is the source of his confidence. This is the source of his, his belief that God's going to save him, even though he doesn't really deserve that at all. Jonah believes that God can turn this tragedy around, and his prayer, this crying out, to God is a sincere plea for God to express himself as the God Jonah knows that he is, a merciful, gracious God. This is why Jonah in verse 4 says he's going to look upon God's holy temple again. I know I'm going to look at it again. I'm going to pray towards God above the water. <laughs> and it's the same temple that he's talking about in verse 7 that his prayer is going to come to. He knows that God's going to hear his prayer. He's trusting in, completely trusting in, the mercy and grace of God. Listen to his statement at the end of, uh, of uh, his prayer in verse 8. 
as he begins to believe and, and hope in this God, he makes a statement at the end of his prayer that is amazing. He's seeing clearly that to embrace anything other than God as his highest treasure, as his greatest joy, is to abandon all hope in God's love. So Jonah 2 verses 8 through 9 says this. This is Jonah's closing words in his prayer. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you, he's talking to God, what I have vowed, I will pay. Now think about what he's talking about here. Think about the, 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 the context. This is profound. And it really, if you were with us at any of the three last weeks that we've looked at this text, you know something of what he's talking about already. He's describing people who do not trust in the one true God. Those who pay regard to vain idols or, or false gods, anything, anything that they worship with their time, their energy, their money, their affections, anything that they worship in that way, things that are residing on the throne of their heart. When they do this, Jonah is saying in this statement, it is suicidal to do this. And it's suicidal because you are, when you do this, forsaking the hope of the steadfast love of God. You are forsaking God's grace and God's mercy and love because you, in embracing these false idols, are abandoning the one thing you need most, which is God. And that's Jonah's statement here. It's this idea that you can place your hope and your gladness on something that can't possibly hold it or serve you in the way that you need to be served. And Jonah is saying in the statement, that's not going to be me. Not anymore. Not me. I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will worship you alone, God, taking away everything else in my life. He's making a vow. He's making a commitment. He's making a promise. He will worship and sacrifice to the Lord. Now, time will tell whether that promise was real or not to come next week or the week after. And we'll see where he is with this promise. But he's making a commitment this isn't an exchange of commodities, a little bit of worship for Yahweh, and I'll get a little bit of salvation from Yahweh. It's not blackmail. This is Jonah's heart breaking wide open and him saying, I need you. I need you. I'm desperate to need you. My own futility is so clear to me. And then he says at the end of this, the very last phrase he utters in this prayer is this line, salvation belongs to the Lord. And he says this because God has already radically provided salvation for him as he was plummeting to the bottom of the sea, as air was escaping his lungs, as he was being crushed, God intervened. And we see a miracle. Jonah is saved. Jonah is saved. There is a miracle that happens here. So this is the third event in this cycle of events that we see in this prayer. It is a miracle, and I'm not talking about the fish. I'm not talking about the fish at all. Or about Jonah surviving at that depth, or being able to breathe, or whatever, however that happened. People get, I think, hung up on the fish swallowing Jonah, and on this seemingly impossible scenario. There's science we need to take account of, and biology, and all of these things. And that bothers some folks. I get it. I can understand why it's 
It's an amazing thing. But the irony about this is that none of those things are the real miracle of this chapter. None of them are. Um, All of those things are child's play to the creator and sustainer of the universe. The real miracle here isn't the great fish, and it isn't Jonah's survival. The real miracle here is that Jonah has changed his tune. What was happening in chapter 1 has stopped to happen. There's been a massive shift, so it seems, in his heart that would have been an impossibility in the first chapter, given where Jonah was. The physical manifestation of this salvation is amazing. But the reason the text doesn't pay much attention to it or make a big deal about it is because the most shocking thing is that Jonah has stopped running from God. He is talking to God right now. He is saying things that are true about God because he knows that he needs him. He's calling out to him, saying, I'm relying on you and you alone. And the author, if you've been paying attention, has already made it clear in the language that they've used that there's more going on here than a man physically drowning. There's actually another fall that begins at the very beginning of the book, well before he even touched the water. There's a a spiritual paradigm to Jonah's physical fall that is infinitely deeper, infinitely more important than the depth of the Mediterranean or what that experience was like for him below. And the author has been telling us this since the very beginning of the book. When Jonah receives the command to preach to Nineveh, his response is to run. And if you remember, and you can even look at it in the text, look closely as the, at the language that the author uses to describe Jonah's running. Chapter 1, verse 3. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. And he found a ship and went down into the ship. Jonah is falling with every single step away from God. It continues, verse 5. When the ship becomes overwhelmingly overwhelmed by this violent, deadly storm, it says that Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and he had lain what? Down. That's right. And was fast asleep. Jonah has been falling since the beginning of this book. And chapter 2's fall is simply a, a continuation, a culmination of his own moral trajectory. It is a picture of what's already been going on in Jonah's heart. And the author's point is that there's more at stake here than a man drowning. There's more at stake here than a man dying in the water. God is contending for Jonah's soul. And part of that contending is that God is allowing Jonah to run from him. God is allowing Jonah to fall headlong into destruction. Jonah even says in chapter, four, or ch- chapter 2, verse 4, I am driven away from your sight. I am driven away from your sight. This is the same language that's used in uh, Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve are cast out of the Garden of Eden. It is the language of punishment. Cain uses this language too. He says, I'm driven away from your face after he kills Abel. This language is is the language of divine discipline. And when Jonah is thrown into the water, look how he describes this event. He doesn't say, hey, listen, I offered myself and they threw me in. 
He doesn't say it was the sailor's idea. Both those things are true. The sailors did throw him in and he did offer himself. But look how he describes it. Verse 3. He says to God, you cast me into the deep. Jonah knows that his running and falling is not a surprise to God. God is not shocked by what's going on here. But they are, in fact, the very means by which God is going to use to save him. And that's not just his physical life. What's most important right now is not Jonah's comfort. What's most important is not his physical safety. It is that God rids him of his self-reliance and his reliance on anything other than God. That is the most critical thing that needs to happen to Jonah. It's the greatest act of mercy that could happen here. Jonah's fall into the sea is, is him ultimately coming face to face with his own futility, the futility of running from God, your creator. And God is telling him in that fall, he's like, Jonah, don't forsake my steadfast love. Don't do it. And part of the way that God tells Jonah this is in verse 7, when it says, Jonah remembered the Lord. He remembered that his God was merciful and gracious. That's the very reason that he cries out. That's the very reason his prayer comes forth into God's temple. He remembers who God really is. And the reason that this is interesting is that he is not calling this memory up on command. This memory doesn't arise from an act of his sheer willpower. He doesn't summon the memory. Um, as far as we can tell, there's no, 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 nothing outside of him that is pressing him to think about this particular memory. This memory invades his mind out of nowhere. He is reminded of God. And the reason this is important is that it didn't happen by accident. God governs what's going through Jonah's mind. And Jonah remembering God's merciful character is actually an act of mercy from the hand of God. Think about this. Jonah, I mean, nothing in the story even indicates that this could possibly be the case. Jonah does not suddenly marshal moral rectitude and draw on some hidden virtue that's been impossible to spot in the first chapter of this book. All we know about Jonah from this story so far says no to that. Since the very beginning, he has not stopped running from God. And yet in this moment, suddenly he remembers God. He remembers who God is. And God in and through Jonah's remembering, ignites Jonah's call and Jonah's prayer for mercy. Without the remembering, that would not happen. And this is why at the end of the prayer, Jonah cries out. This is why he says this, salvation belongs to the Lord. It wasn't a coincidence that I remembered you. You brought yourself to my mind. It was you, God, who gave me the memory and so as Jonah's falling down, he knows that salvation must come from the Lord. There's no way he can earn anything. There's no way he can prove himself to God that he should be saved. He is without hope, like we said earlier. Yet verse 6 says, shockingly, yet you have brought up my life from the pit. Think about what's being said here. 
if Jonah's fall began before he even was thrown from the boat, if it began on a spiritual level well before that, it means that the miracle of Jonah 2, the miracle we see happen in, in 117 and then throughout Jonah 2 has less to do with Jonah's, the preservation of Jonah's physical life and much more, infinitely more, I would say, to do with God's desire to save Jonah's soul. God is after his soul. And Jonah's remembering of God, his calling out to God, is God's way of bringing him up before anything physical happens to him. The real pit that God is bringing Jonah up from isn't the Mediterranean. That's not a big deal at all. God can do that like that. The real pit is Jonah's own self-destructive downward spiral into selfishness. And the main point of Jonah's salvation from the depths of the sea is that salvation is actually from God alone. God alone orchestrated every single drop of that. That's the picture that's being painted here from beginning to end. Every single millisecond of this is God's work on Jonah's heart. Even his very fall, like we said before, is a means by which God's going to use to show him, to wake him up from his stupor and say, this is who I really am. I'm really this loving. I'm really this gracious. So God's hand isn't just reaching down and pulling Jonah out of the sea alone. God's hand is reaching down into the darkest depths of his soul and saying, don't run from me anymore. I'm here. I will pick you up out of the depths and I will, I will fix this. I will make this right. And so here's the thing that's amazing about this miracle that we read in Jonah 2. The amazing thing about this is that if your faith is in Jesus Christ, everything we just saw in Jonah 2 is true at some level, in some way, about you. If you trust Jesus, he actually did pull you from the deep. He pulled you from the deep. Your salvation, no matter how it played out, belonged completely to the Lord. He, he did not wait for you to come to him. No matter what it looked like on the surface, he did not wait for you to come to him. He came and he revealed himself to you, which is why in Matthew 16, when Jesus asked Peter, who do they say I am? And Peter responds, they say this, they say that, they say that. And he's like, who do you say, who do you, Peter, say that I am? And Peter tells him, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus responds in verse 17 with this statement, Matthew 16, 17. He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The reason that Peter knows who Jesus is isn't because he was clever and he figured out all the signs. It wasn't because he's spiritually adept. If you've read the Gospels, you know this is not the case with Peter. It wasn't because of anything that he brought to the table with flesh and blood or anybody else brought to the table with flesh and blood. The reason that Peter knows who Jesus is is because God the Father revealed the glory of Jesus Christ to Peter's soul such that he saw the beauty, the worth, how compelling Jesus was as the Son of God. And he could say, I know this for a fact. 
I know who you are, Jesus. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. This is how God saves. This is how God came down there and reminded Jonah. This is how God redeems people. God's grace doesn't wait for you to be ready. That's the beautiful thing about his grace. It invades when you least expect it. And God's grace is the thing that makes you ready to receive. And such that without him stepping in, we would be running forever. This is exactly what Jesus is talking about in Luke 10. So if we look in Luke 10, verse 21 and 22, listen to Jesus' prayer here. Listen to the language he uses. Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one who knows this no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is a stunning statement. I mean, I don't know if you've ever just sat looking at this text here. This is a prayer. <laughs> Jesus is rejoicing as he says this prayer to God. And what he's saying here is that if, if you know who Jesus is, if you know who he is, if you trust that he is who he said he was, just like Peter, it isn't because of something you brought to the table or I brought to the table. It is ultimately because the Son has revealed himself to us. God has revealed it to little children. And Jesus here is rejoicing in this aspect of God's gracious will. And he's effectively saying what Jonah said, salvation belongs to the Lord. We don't manufacture it. We don't bring all of our clever decision-making to it. God infiltrates, overwhelms our defenses with his grace, and he takes our heart for himself. He doesn't subvert our will. He frees our will from slavery to sin and, and lies and deceit and selfish desires. And, and so when we see him with free will, looking at his glory, drawn into his presence, we see how great and how awesome he really is. And we fall in love with him. That's remarkable that that happened to us. That is remarkable. It is a miracle that God in his mercy doesn't wait for inclinations to rise up in us, but works in our hearts to create the very inclination we need. And so... I want you to reflect a little bit before we continue. No matter what your story is, no matter if you grew up in church, or no matter if you became a Christian when you were late in life, the lesson we learn in Jonah is that something of this happened to us, that we saw something of his glory. God opened the eyes of our hearts to see his steadfast love, and in doing that, he brought us up out of the pits. And so Jonah's salvation in Jonah 2, his physical salvation is something that has happened to us spiritually in a very deep way. God has brought us up out of the pit. So the question is, how does it that God, do, how does it that God goes about this? Does he just snap his fingers and it happens or does he speak a word? How did God achieve bringing us up out of the pit? 
And the answer is he did not do any of those things. He had to actually do something else, something much more costly. Think about this. I mean, God created the universe, everything out there and in here and all of it in its finite, its infinitely small detail and its far-reaching spanning across the universe. God created all of that with a word. And yet to save us, he had to go much further than that. In order for any salvation to happen, God had to go into the deep after us. This miracle that, that you and I have as believers, that we trust God, um, is not a given. It's not something we should expect or just assume is right and good. God had to secure it himself. And he does this by coming down into the depths, all the way down there in the bottom where Jonah was, where we were, in our sin, in our own self-destruction. And he meets us at the bottom where we were about to perish forever, and he saves us. Listen to how Paul describes this in Philippians 2, verse 5. Paul says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. This is going all the way to the bottom. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What Paul is describing in Philippians 2 is the condescension of God the Son, the Son of God. God is reaching into an infinite deep. It's the delta between God and man, and he is coming to save us. It says that Christ Jesus did not count the glory of his own divinity in all of its fullness at the right hand of the Father, a thing that he needed to hold on to. But rather, he took the form of a man, and he did that by emptying himself, by going very low. Paul is describing what it was like for Christ to plunge into the depths of human existence and then shockingly, to die as a criminal. It says it, he humbled himself by dying on a cross. And what happened on that cross for Jesus, God himself, is that in the cross, he purchases, buys, ransoms everything we would ever need to be saved. Every single thing that we would need to be saved. And he guarantees it with his blood. The cross is the bottom of the sea in Jonah. That's what the cross is in, in redemptive history. You cannot go further down than the cross because the cross is this intersection of God's justice, his wrath, and his grace. Takes our sin, brings it, and it's paid for in the cross. And it's the only place where God's wrath and God's justice meets fully with us or with him, with Jesus. It is the bottom. It is the bottom of all of reality. And this is exactly what he experienced. And when he did, he removed every single barrier. Think about this. Every barrier between you and God, between you and being with God forever, was removed on that cross. 
every barrier between you being saved was removed by Jesus on that cross. Think about Jonah at the bottom of the sea. Think about his, his situation at the bottom of the sea. He could not contribute anything. What can you do there? But die. He could not contribute anything to his salvation, and he only cried out to God when the thought of God's goodness penetrated his mind, graciously surfaced in his mind, which was God's gracious act to save him. And the same is true about every single one of us in this room at some level who amazingly, this is, this is astonishing, we trust Jesus. Isn't that not weird? Never seen him, never heard his voice, but we love him. First Peter says, that's a miracle. What chapter two in Jonah teaches us is that we should never try looking inside of us for a reason for God to have saved us. We should never look into our own souls for some sort of merit or some sort of thing that God said, that's what I need on my team. That's what I wanted. I'm gonna save you now because it doesn't exist. We are saved by God alone through, mercy, through his mercy, through his grace. And we are trophies of his grace. So when we think about what it was that caused God to save us, we need to look at him his matchless love because every ounce of our salvation came from him, from the first inclination you had to trust him to the final breath of faith. It will all be God. The cross doesn't just open a door or an opportunity for us to walk through. The cross takes us from the bottom of the ocean and brings us all the way up to him. That's what the cross accomplishes. Just when its bars were about to close in on us forever, he says, no, I will not have that happen. And he comes and rescues us. And my prayer really for, for me, this, this is, much of this was written this morning at 7.30 <laughs> because it's gone through a whirlwind of change. My prayer for me and for you is that God would arrest our hearts this morning with that reality that salvation belongs to God. And as we take communion here in the next few moments, I want you to just consider this. Just do your best to consider this reality. The gospel isn't just an event that opened up a possibility but leaves the rest of it up to us. That's not the gospel. The gospel is what God did to secure everything we need for salvation. Everything we need. Jesus did not leave anything to chance when he went to the cross. He didn't. Think about your own life. Think about why it is you love him now. That's inexplicable. There might have been a thousand different things that led you to trust in him. But why is it that those things are in your life? Why is it that you believe what you believe? A miracle happened inside of you. So when Jesus gave his body for his people on the cross, he didn't complete his work and say, I really hope somebody believes in this. That's not the gospel. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. It's done. I've done everything necessary. And in that act, by Jesus' blood, he furnishes 
every single thing, every single thing that we need to be saved. From the first thought that you have that he might be your savior, all the way, and, and all the trust and faith that happens in between, all the way to the last moments of your life. When you close your eyes to open them again and stare at him face to face, all of that was paid for on the cross. All of that was purchased that's how radical God's love is for us. That's how exceedingly matchless his love is for us. And I would just plead with you to spend your entire life contemplating that, embracing it, enjoying it, and showing it to the world. I would ask that you do that because there's no greater love than that. He didn't wait for us to fix things. Praise be to God. He came into our hearts, breathed life when there was no sign of life. And because of that, we can say, we can say with Jonah, salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've been talking about the reality of knowing you and seeing you, you being revealed in our hearts, the the glory of Jesus Christ, the beauty of who he is. And every week, this is what we ask for. Every week, we, we plead with you that you would open the vaults of heaven and shine the light of Jesus into our souls, into our hearts, into the deepest parts of our being that we don't like to tell anybody about the things that we think the things that we say, our dispositions, Father. Help us, Father God, to know you. Help, help us to recognize not only who Jesus Christ is, but the immensity of your grace in making that apparent to us. It did not need to be that way. So many people out there cannot see you the way we do. So many people out there look at the scriptures, they look at the glory of God in creation, they look at the reality of Jesus and they say, that's not for me. How devastating that they would disabuse themselves of the one who made them and the one for whom they would be, they, the one for whom they were made, their whole purpose. Father, grant us a passion and a desire to close that gap. In our own hearts first, Father, as we embrace the radical nature of your work of salvation in our souls and then in the hearts of other people, Father God, no one is beyond your reach. That's what this text teaches us. No one is beyond your reach. Help us see that. Help us believe it, Father, and help us help that overshadow every communication we have with anybody. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.